0: This play is a classic because it not only draws on a story passed down generation to generation, but it helps us recontextualize that generational story
1: in a more empowering and perhaps more accurate way. This play is a classic because it's a haunting and beautiful feminist adaptation of a traditional folklore.
0: This play is a classic because it takes a tired trope and reimagines it in such a rich way that we are no longer satisfied by the original.
1: This play is a classic because it answers the question of why women are behaving out of character, and the answer is, the world be like that. This
0: is our history. This is our...
1: Hello and welcome to This Is a Classic, the Expand the Canon Theater Podcast. We're your hosts? Mary Candler, founder of Hedgepig Ensemble Theater and curator for Expand the Canon. And me, Sky Pagan, curator for Expand the Canon and member of Hedgepig Ensemble. Expand the Canon is a program of Hedgepig Ensemble,
0: a Brooklyn-based company that reimagines the classics, creating a legacy of storytelling with
1: gender equity at its core. And today, we are diving into The Pascualas by Isidora Aguirre. Now, we'll talk more about the play in just a second, but if you want a short little pitch on what this play is about, you can find the following blurb on our website. Expandthecanon.com
0: Driven to extremes by forbidden love and the gendered constraints of their world, the women struggle with their new worldviews and each other, leading this tightly wound story to its haunting climax. If you're looking for an ethereal folk story about the perils of love and loneliness, consider this elusively modern take on a traditional Chilean folktale. Legend has it that long ago, three lonely women lived in harmony alongside a lake until their lives were altered forever by a mysterious stranger with whom they each fell in love. Driven to extremes by forbidden love and the gendered constraints of their world, The women struggle with their new worldviews and each other, leading this tightly wound story to its haunting climax. Aguirre's masterpiece is grounded by its portrait of the realities of female loneliness in a patriarchal society, making it as raw and intimate as it is otherworldly. So Sky, beyond this glorious language of
1: our pitch, what is this play? (laughs) About Oh my goodness. So this play is based on a traditional Chilean folktale, actually. The tale of the three Pascualas. Um, And what's interesting about this particular translation we have is when this play was translated into English, they realized that although the folktale was a fairly famous one in Chile, and so audiences might be familiar with it, they couldn't assume that an English-speaking or international audience would necessarily know the original folktale. So they actually wrote this little prologue and epilogue sort of introducing what the actual myth was. Um, But this is really Aguirre's own spin on this folktale from a little bit more of a feminist perspective. So the play opens up in a small Chilean village not far outside of Santiago, which is the capital city of Chile. And we're living on this little farm by a lake. And the three main characters in this play are really these three women who are all related. So we have Elvira, who is the sort of matriarch character in this family. And she's married to an older man who is the father of her daughter, Marcela, uh, who is 15 years old. And then the third woman in this story is Adelaide, or Adelaida, who is Elvira's mute sister.
0: I really appreciate that um, Aguirre named these three characters because in the folktale, all three of them are named Pascualas (laughs) or Pascuala, I suppose, Um, singular, and they all have the same name. And so I thought, "Mm, very, very practical to give them actual names.
1: Yes, exactly. Uh, Pascuala is their surname. They're all Pascual. Um, So Pascualas is like the lady Pascuals. Anyway, um, but yes, they all have their own names. They have beautiful, beautiful names. Um, so these three women, at this point, at the start of the play, are living in relative harmony, but in certain isolation. So they live in this big lake in the middle of nowhere, basically. And there's a lot of a culture of witchcraft and evil spirits that is sort of ebbing at the edges of this story. We hear the servants talking about omens and things like that. So it's certainly this very sort of spiritualist society, um, and they're living in relative harmony, although, definitely isolated and lonely, Mm -hmm. when one day a young man named Daniel Norton arrives. He is a scientist, actually, studying insects, Um, and he stumbles across their home because he's come to the lake to study a specific breed of insect that only is native to that area. He usually lives in Santiago. Um, And so he comes to their house basically looking for directions. So he knocks on their door and and Elvira answers and they have a little chat about what he's doing there. And, you know, he studies books, which is like weird and interesting. But while he's there, Marcela, uh Elvira's daughter, collapses from exhaustion. And he, you know, springs into action and helps out and carries her in and you know, takes, you know, where takes care of Elvira's worries and all of that. Um, Man, this is like the most interesting th- thing that has happened by this lake in a while. Yeah. Exactly. And also, I should note, it's in strong contrast to Elvira's husband, um, who we never see. He is bedbound and is only an offstage presence for the entire show. So we have this sort of juxtaposition of isolation mm-hmm. and this idea of sort of like this frail masculine figure that we never see. And then, like, young, interesting Daniel Norton who shows up and is like, I'm going to talk about bugs and save your daughter. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, so he makes quite the impression immediately, um, and they have a really wonderful conversation. He's interesting. He's interested in them. And so Elvira invites him to stay for dinner, and then a dinner invitation turns into inviting him to actually stay with the family for a period of time. Please, um, so please, anyone. Literally. Uh, but the deal is that in a, in return for a place to stay and access to the lake so he can do his research on his bugs, he will tutor Marcela, who's, you know, 15 years old and understimulated and doesn't really have much formal education going for her. So there's a little trade-off happening there.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So he stays. And over a period of time, it becomes pretty clear that, you know, he's very well in- integrated into this family. They all adore him. And Elvira, in particular, is clearly smitten. Mm-hmm. Um So they have this one very intense conversation one night, where he's asking her, "What do you want? What do you need?" All these like very sort of. This is uh, one of those things where like you can tell this was written by a woman writer because the guy isn't like forcing. He's not like trying to seduce her. He's just being like, "What do you want?" You know.
0: There's such Uh, incredible tension too, of like her wanting
1: to say it and knowing that her bedridden husband is in the next room. Exactly. So they have this Uh very intense like romantically tense conversation one night that leads to them kissing um so they start up this sort of little dalliance um but then alvira has to go to santiago for work uh she has to go to the city to get some supplies because she runs this farm i mean sure her husband is lying in bed and so she is in charge she's in charge and it's also like not going great like no the farm is having a really hard time exactly things are not going well so she's going to santiago they're trying you know, get some supplies and shore up some money and keep everything one afloat. So she has to leave, which she doesn't want to do. Um, And she tries to confess her love to Daniel, but he seemingly misunderstands her or possibly deliberately misunderstands her. And he has actually this beautiful speech where he's, you know, sort of saying like, oh, I know why you're so upset. You're upset because you're betraying your husband and you're betraying your, you know, Ideals and stuff like that. So you can just blame our trysts on the mountains, blame them on the lake. And again, it's that recurrence of that sort of magical nature imagery of powers at work that are larger than ourselves, um, which is not the answer that Elvira was looking for. So she goes to Santiago pretty heartbroken. And in her absence, things start to fall apart a little bit. And one night uh, after a particularly tense day, Daniel comes into the house after, you know, a day of work and he comes upon Adelaide sitting alone in the living room. And another beautiful recurring image in this is Adelaide plays guitar, which is sort of like this lovely thing of like, she doesn't speak, she can't speak, but she expresses herself through her music. And there's this sort of haunting guitar music written into the script in a number of places. A great kind of ambiance throughout the whole play. And she's you know, been this sort of ghost-like presence around the peripheries of all the scenes. She's in a lot of scenes and we see her sort of reacting to stuff, but obviously she never speaks. And so it's clear that there's like a lot of stuff bubbling inside of her. And then, you know, Daniel basically confronts her and is like, if you could have anything, what do you want? Which again, is this thing that these women have never been asked. Mm -hmm. They live in the middle of nowhere. They only have each other for company. So this becomes this really compelling question. And she is torn for a long time and isn't sure she wants to have this conversation or whatever. But eventually she writes him a note asking for seemingly a kiss. It's not actually shown what she writes, but he agrees to kiss her. And that leads to them spending the night together. Um, yeah, I think quickly. Very quickly, yes. And I think another thing that's important in this scene is there's been some heavy implication by this point. But uh, again, coming from the servant characters, we hear a lot of their gossip and the background of these people from them. There's been this heavy implication that perhaps Elvira's husband was initially interested in Adelaide when he first came to their town, but that Elvira won him over. And so there's this sense that perhaps perhaps Adelaide is sort of holding on to this grudge against her sister of this love she could have had, this alternative life she could have had. Um, Because it's also noted that she's not, she wasn't born mute. She became mute after an accident. Um, So there's
0: this sense that... Another ambiguous part of her story. Was it an accident? Is she choosing to withdraw
1: in this way? It's hard to say. Exactly. And there's this sense that perhaps she blames her sister for what she doesn't have in her life. So there's a sense also of like you know, while I'm sure she's also interested in Daniel because he's showing her sincere attention, that is the one thing about Daniel is he's, for all, you know, his playing around with multiple women, he does behave sincerely. It doesn't feel like flattery. It feels like somebody who's actually asking somebody questions, which of course is the most alluring thing and it's ambiguous whether that's a tactic or whatever. But Mm -hmm. At least on its face, it feels sincere. He's absolutely present with each one of these
0: women. It doesn't feel like, oh, I'm getting them all. It's like, no. He is true and authentic in each moment.
1: Yes. So whatever the reason, they spend the night together, which Marcela, who's the daughter of the house, sees part of. She sees them going into Daniel's room, and it's clear that there's going to be some ticking time bomb that happens there. Mm -hmm. So uh, shortly after this, Elvira returns from Santiago and... Immediately, like the vibes are clearly off in this house. Um, nobody is talking about it, and Elvira is sort of going insane trying to figure out what. But <laughs> she's like, "I was only gone two days. What possibly could have happened?" Exactly. But it, there's you know now there's all this tension of Elvira, who is has this ruptured relationship with Daniel, and then Adelaide has this secret night that she spent with Daniel, and then the servants are all behaving weird because they think there's witches, and the men are, and the men are fighting and. Uh, meanwhile, Marcela is starting to act out for unknown reasons, but the unknown reasons quickly become apparent when Marcela, during a tutoring session with Daniel, suddenly asks him to take her with him when he goes back to Santiago, and she declares her love for him. He sort of rebuffs her immediately and is like, you're a child, um, but he doesn't, like, leave the room exactly. He sort of mm-hmm. is... I. The generous take on this is he's trying to be sort of sensitive to her feelings. He says all this stuff about, you're 15, you're in love with me because I'm the first man you've ever met. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. Which, like, as an adult, we can say is true, but also isn't necessarily the most helpful thing to say to a (laughs) 15-year-old. So he gives her this kiss on the forehead at one point. You know, she's really upset and he's trying to calm her down. But she's like, you love me. That means you love me. So he's just really lost control of the situation. And obviously, like, she's 15 years old. She's a minor. And so, like, this has now gotten way out of hand. This is now the third woman in this house who is throwing herself at him. And he takes that as his cue to leave. And he calls for his bags and leaves the house that night.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I would get out. I would get out. (laughs) Yes. So having made a mess of things, Daniel is gone. So then we jump forward a bit. And some time has passed. And... You know, things have settled a little bit. Daniel's gone, but nothing is the same. You know, it's clear that these women have all been deeply impacted by his presence and then his absence and everybody's sad and just behaving strangely. And Adelaide in particular has been acting very strangely. She's been caught multiple times walking into the lake with all her clothes on. And again, that ambiguity, it's unclear whether this is suicidality whether this is her being disoriented Mm
0: -hmm.
1: whether this is an act of desperation because we find out from marcella that she's pregnant with daniel's child from that night she spent they spent together so finally all this is coming to a breaking point and elvira basically confronts her daughter and is like what is what are what is going on and marcella tells her everything uh that adelaide is pregnant and that she's in love with daniel and that everyone is you know a mess And Elvira initially is pretty defensive. Um, Elvira had not quite been able to let go of her feelings for Daniel and had also been sort of secretly planning to go to Santiago to try and see him and be with him, you know, abandoning her family and her position. And so Marcela kind of confronts her about that, and they have this big confrontation scene. And Elvira then has this sort of moment of clarity where she's, like, really, I think, seeing her daughter as you know, a child. I mean, she's 15. She's not mm-hmm. a grown-up. And she sees her daughter's distress and all everything that's happened, and she sort of realizes that, like, okay, fine, we all, we all need to get out. And so she says, we're all going to go to Santiago together. We're all going to leave. We can't stay here. Mm-hmm. Um, however, at, right at this point, we hear alarm bells. So Marcela has stormed off Uh, Elvira is having this sort of private moment where she realizes that she needs to get her family out of there. And then we hear the alarm bells. Um, And Elvira takes this as a sign that something has happened to her daughter. Uh, Mm -hmm. The bell only gets rung when there's an accident on the lake. So she thinks her daughter, maybe in her desperation, has drowned herself or has tried to drown herself. So she runs out. And we have this big climactic moment. And then we cut to the epilogue. And it's again a few months later. And we're with our servant characters again. None of the three women are there. And we find out that all three women are now dead. Adelaide had walked into the lake in her disorientation or as an attempt to kill herself or as an attempt to end her pregnancy. Mm -hmm. It's unclear what. And Marcela had seen this and had run in to try and help her. She wasn't successful, and Elvira sees the two women she loves most in the world drowning, and she runs in after them to try and help, and all three of them end up drowning. So it's really a tragedy. Um, and I think the thing that's compelling in this epilogue is they have this conversation about, you know, there's this younger serving character who's sort of romanticizing it and saying, like, oh, they died for love, they died for love. And one of the other characters is saying they didn't die for love. You know, they, they drowned. It was an accident. It was, you know, a real tragedy. But the thing they sort of settle on is it doesn't really matter what actually happened because the legend of the Pasquales has already started. And so the legend in the end is what actually matters more than the truth. Legacy.
0: I am such a sucker for retellings of, like, fairy tales and oh, folk yeah. tales and all of that. So this, like really gets me going right from the start. And I will say, I kind of tumbled down a little rabbit hole on TikTok. I am much too old for the TikTok. (laughs) But I was like, I wonder if the kids still talk about this legend. So in my non-Spanish speaking way, I did some Googling. And it's like really still out there. You've got like high school kids telling this legend. And you've got some very strange animated versions of this legend. And um
1: a really cool version of like a dry erase board version that I recommend you check out. I like you, Mary. I'm just, I'm a sucker for a retelling of a classic myth. Just gets me every time. I love the mm-hmm. metatheatricality of it. I love the ability to sort of re-examine something in a new context and place that against, you know, previous traditions and what that tells us about mobility and society and how things change. Like, just uh, eat it up. Yum, 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 yum. yum. Um, but I think mm-hmm. the thing that like really strikes me most about this play is we have this original myth where these women are, as you noted, literally nameless and they're sort of kind of interchangeable with each other. And so what she's really doing here is going in and investigating this myth and trying to make sense of it. I mean, I remember when we were first discussing this play for The List, Emily Lyon, our uh, fellow curator, had some qualms about it because she was You know, she was rightfully sort of chafing at the idea of three women throwing themselves at a man and then dying, which I think, you know, is the bullet points, obviously, plot points of this play. But I think what makes it compelling is Aguirre is taking that premise and saying, okay, but what would actually make people behave like that? Yeah.
0: It gives us all those social forces that would drive women to make choices that might appear less stable
1: exactly and you it, she makes you get it i mean these are three women living in social isolation they're they have very little contact with the outside world they're economically isolated as well they don't have a lot of money there's not much social mobility there's not much financial mobility for them um i mean in the play elvira married her husband to save the farm, literally. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. She married a guy who she didn't love who was much older because they were going to lose the family farm, and that was the option. And so, you know, you're asking questions of, okay, for people who have had very little choices in their life about how they live their lives, even on a day-to-day of where they live and what they're allowed to do and how far away from home they're allowed to go, to then have this guy show up who's not only you know, canonically described as handsome, <laughs> um, but is also worldly. You know, he's, he's a scientist and he's from the big city of Santiago and he's asking these women what they want and what he can do for them. And he's seeing them, you know, he's acknowledging the fact that they're struggling to their faces. I mean, he's sort of like a, hey girl, you should ha- take care of yourself kind of thing, um, which is if you've never heard in your entire life, I can only imagine would be incredibly seductive. I agree. Yeah, it really
0: takes this trope of like, oh, this very tired trope of women are crazy Mm -hmm. and says like, um, let's look at the situation that women are in because that's crazy.
1: Yeah, exactly. And it's to that point, Daniel is sort of an interesting characterization of that because he's not a Prince Charming character at all or at least in a traditional No, he's a bug aspect. guy. Come he's on. He's guy. like a he's, bug he's, guy. He's <laughs> I mean, he's, you know, he's described as handsome and young, but mostly like the thing he does that is most interesting is he just talks to these people. Like yeah. he is, has, they have these really beautiful tete-a-tete scenes between him and the various women where he's really approaching them as people and asking them about what they want and what they dream of and what is missing from their lives. And you know, it's it can be argued whether or not that's a tactic of seduction or not. But at the very least, like we said, that's a compelling thing if you've never been shown that sort of attention before. Yeah.
0: And they I, all three women do fall for him for, I think, all of these reasons that you're talking about. But the other thing that is kind of turned on its head in this telling or this retelling is do the women die for love? Maybe. It may be for love of this man, but also we have Marcella diving in to save Adelaide. Uh And then we have Elvira diving in to save Marcella. It's not just love of a man. It's like love of each other too.
1: Yeah. And I think that's also sort of the beautiful tragedy of this story is we meet these characters at a point when they're all kind of divided. You know, um, Adelaide has this sort of longstanding tension with her sister Elvira for Elvira possibly stealing her man away when she was young um Marcela is just like a teenager and wants to get out and so there's there's this tension when we meet these characters and then it sort of takes this shared sense of loss and this shared tragedy over this guy to sort of bring them back together and the you know the tragedy is they don't manage to come back together they all die but it is sort of a beautiful love story about finding a way back to each other through hardship Yeah, in some
0: versions of the legend, you hear that they're all sitting at the bottom of the lake, like, (laughs) chatting, more or less. So it's like, maybe they found their way back to each other. I don't know. Yeah. In rereading this play, and even just the way you describe this kind of, um, like, loneliness and this farm and the marrying to, like, save the farm, it strikes me as so deeply Chekhovian. Uh. It feels so much like the cherry orchard meets Vanya with that really deep yearning for something and that forever wait and then yearning for more and yet like nothing changing. And that just really
1: struck me in my reread in a way that it hadn't before. I think your metaphor for Chekhov is spot on in terms of that sense of that quiet desperation and isolation and all of that. But I think the thing that sets this play apart from Chekhov is there's this kind of haunted tone to it. Mm Mm-hmm. That feels, it's like you're never, everything that happens, you're never quite sure if it's real or not or if people are acting because of some sort of elusive, not even magical, but like supernatural non-human forces or whether things are fated or predetermined or whether there's agency or not. And it's all sort of living in that blurred world. So there's this very almost dreamlike quality to the play that is really beautiful. It's deeply atmospheric. It's
0: so atmospheric. It's like, you know, if the play is Chekhovian in terms of like wants, desires, and needs, like it is not a Russian play in any way. It is so
1: distinctly Chilean, I think. Uh And it's, yeah, it's just, it's a beautifully written play. Um, Mm -hmm. I think is also what we're getting at. There's really lovely language in it. And you've just got poetry spouting from this
0: 15-year-old who is just trying to find any outlet in this world. So it's very lyrical
1: at yeah. the same time.
0: It's a, it's a really beautiful play for
1: all its tragedy.
0: And you know I love any play that, you know, deals in witchcraft. Oh, yeah. Big fans of witches here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, something that—this um, is—honestly, I'm stealing one of your notes here, Skye— this idea of the witchcraft reversal. Mm-hmm. I love this idea of, like, we are living in a world where kind of spirits and witchcraft are present, but the one that we're wondering about is, like, is Daniel actually the witch bewitching them versus we're so used to seeing, you know, women as witches.
1: Absolutely. There's And, like, that is, like, just, like, such a juicy little proposition that, like, The witch is this, like, weird little English-speaking bug guy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And while, like, I do think this is probably
0: going to be cast with a fairly attractive person, I don't think they have to be, like, hubba hubba so hot. I think it's, like, personality hot.
1: Exactly. It's also, like, the one man on the farm that you've seen (laughs) in 10 years hot. (laughs) (laughs) But I do think, actually, his characterization is really interesting as well. Because, I mean, we've said this sort of, but he's not, like... He doesn't feel like a predator, and he doesn't feel like a a knight in shining armor. He just kind of feels like this fairly interesting, charismatic bug guy. Yeah. It Um, makes me really wonder in this play,
0: I'm like, is Daniel actually into any of these women, or is he truly seeing them where they are and asking what they want and just providing it? I'm not sure.
1: Exactly. And again, that ambiguity that is so thematic in this piece. But I like that 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 it feels ambiguous because it doesn't feel, you don't feel like these women are being taken advantage of in a way that I think would make you feel like they were less competent or, you know what I mean? Like, I think yeah. sometimes if, if it feels like, oh, he's just seducing them, it kind of makes the women characters seem less capable mm-hmm. or smart by mm-hmm. contrast because you're like, how were you taken in by this? Mm-hmm. Um, but you get it. Every scene, every it. interaction, you're like, yeah. It's very compelling. Absolutely. He's listening to them. Um, and, I, and I think he is conflicted by the end, which I think is also compelling. You sort of see him realize that he's gotten in over his head. Yeah. And obviously that doesn't excuse his behavior because he, you know, <laughs> acted badly. He has, he has, in fact, muddied the waters here. Correct. But you sort of get the sense of, like, he didn't come in with that as the agenda. <laughs> right, right. He was really just looking at these bugs. Yeah, he you know, when you're just looking for bugs and you end up sleeping with three women. <laughs>
0: Please, I don't
1: think he I don't think he slept
0: with Marcella. Please. No,
1: I don't think he slept. I think he only slept with Elvira canonically. Or not Elvira, <laughs> Adelaide canonically, but Yes, yes, yes. You know yes. What I mean? <laughs> but no, I get it. You know, I don't want to reduce
0: this show, but if you are with a reducing organization and you're like, Where would I slot this? There's an argument that you could put it in a kind of Halloween slot in terms of if you really want to play up the legend, which is a little zombie-ish from what I've seen on TikTok, um, and then surprise people by the delightfulness and the fullness of the characters. There you go. Second pitch. History. Well, this is all wonderful.
1: Now, who is behind this amazing play? This play is written by a wonderful woman named Isadora Aguirre. And she was a Chilean playwright. She was born in 1919 in Chile. And she was definitely sort of steeped in the art world from a young age. She was, you know, as a kid studying visual arts and literature, and dance and music. And she, by the age of 21, uh, had married a refugee from the Spanish Civil War. And she moved away with him to Paris, where she began to make her living actually as an illustrator, So she's, you know, living this life in Paris as an illustrator, married to this guy, and eventually she does return to Chile. And she has this, like, kind of magical chance encounter with this actor and theater director at the time uh, named Hugo Miller. And she literally just, like, bumps into this guy on a trolley, and they start chatting, and he's talking about his work, and she is just floored by the conversation i mean obviously mm. we don't like know exactly there isn't really a recording of exactly what they said but something about this conversation just struck a chord on her moments in your life literally and she just on a dime just changes her entire career she starts taking classes with this guy hugo miller um, at the ministry of education in dramaturgy and she decides to become a writer and to devote herself to theater so she is just like all in And in 1952 is when she produced her first works, Carolina and La Dama del Calasto, which were both comedies. So she starts with this, you know, writing comedies, but it becomes pretty clear as her work develops um, that her work is covering many styles. She's interested in a lot of different genres. And also she starts playing with investigating the social and societal norms in her country in Mm. a way that possibly may have come back to bite her we'll get to that in a second but she goes on to be quite prolific and she's uh particularly inspired by the work of Bertolt Brecht and is very interested in the idea of committed theater which she commits to I mean (laughs) she is known during her lifetime for these incredibly intensive research methods you know, she'll travel all over the country and talk to people in obscure towns and immerse herself in a, in this tiny village just so that she can write a single scene that takes place in this one place. Um, but she really wants to represent people accurately. And, you know, she spends hours in libraries reading original documents and really getting to know the people and the worlds that she then goes on to convey.
0: That's incredible.
1: I mean, it's just really incredible that she kind of fits in. I wonder if
0: this is something that is just iconic of our list. You look at Zora Neale Hurston and like Shirley Graham, both women also deeply interested in kind of the anthropology around the work that they are doing as well. Very into this deeply researched work.
1: Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, I think it's also like Isadora in particular has all these quotes online up specifically around her sort of devotion to her work I mean she was incredibly prolific she wrote like upwards of 30 plays and novels but you know she's she has all this these quotes online where she's talking about like how she's like I don't have time to be married I don't have time for you know I I give up things I give up so much in my social life to commit to my writing Mm -hmm. and you know there's part of me that is like oh is that coming out of that sort of anthropological curiosity or is that coming out of this sort of gendered pressure of you know Mm. you need to work twice as hard to get half as far um yeah because there is this sort of like almost like manic sense in a lot of these quotes online of like this is somebody who is dogged in their pursuit of excellence in their work which obviously we are grateful for because it's left behind this incredible body of work an incredible
0: body of work of which so much still needs to be translated into english
1: Yes, absolutely. And we should say a a number, she's a very prolific writer and she's a, I mean, she is a well-known writer in Chile. She was produced a lot in her lifetime and some of her work has been translated into English, um, but the majority of it hasn't. So she's this sort of, you know, national treasure in Chile, but does not have much uh, international recognition, which obviously she deserves. Let's change it. Let's change it. Let's change it. it. Let's change it. You want to produce this play? We got you. But I will say in terms of that national recognition, she, you know, she was produced a lot in her lifetime. She was very prolific. She was published a ton. And she did receive a number of awards, but she was never awarded the National Prize for Literature in Chile, which is sort of the big uh, arts award of the country, which is notable. I mean, with someone of her background and for Mm -hmm. her contributions to the arts, I should say also, like, in addition to writing, she is teaching, she is speaking at events, she's working at universities. Like, She is working in this field. She is a titan of the industry and she never is awarded this large prize, which apparently is something that she was not afraid to comment on, which I kind of love of her being like, "Hmm, interesting that you never nominated me for this. Yeah.
0: Well, it seems like she's really fighting something there with this like tireless work ethic and, you know, sacrificing everything for her work. I think we're on to something in terms of having to work
1: three times as hard to get not quite as far. Exactly. And I think that that's something that I think other folks who knew her, some of her contemporaries and also scholars have noted about her posthumously is she she's one of those people that based on her resume, you think would have more recognition than she did. Mm -hmm. And so there's this sense of particularly with this prize of whether her not being awarded that was due to some kind of sexism. Or also, as I said earlier, some of her plays do deal with some, you know, more feminist and socially political themes. And there's this sense of, oh, maybe she was denied this prize deliberately because of the subject matter of her work as well. Mm -hmm. So either way, there's a sense that, you know, she probably or certainly is due more recognition and celebration than she was awarded during her life um so we're hoping well, to makes help me very way. proud to have her on the expand the canon list dun, dun. here is a
0: recording from our film scene of the pasqualas performed by desiree baxter and anna solis
2: Mother Maria Purissima. Chonchon, be on your way. <laughs> oh not do it! Oh, <laughs> that you child! How you frightened me! I thought it was the Chonchon bird flying around again. Oh, if I can lay hands on him, I'll pluck out the feathers of that demon. Oh, are you still dressed in that crazy costume? I am Miyaria, waiting on my ship, Aganamon. Mm. And who is that with such a frightful name? Aganamon, my warrior. Listen, oh sweet Alcuria tree, where winds blow dark, and pass in moonless night, the birds of time, the birds of time. I wonder what that is. Manuka, what are the birds of time? If they bring bad luck, they're probably chonchones. You are in your birds of bad luck. I laugh at your chonchones. Ah! Hush! <laughs> What's the matter with you? Can't you understand that they're witches or the heads of witches that fly around? And there ain't anything makes them matter than to have a body make fun of them. They come flying back in a hurry to let them know about it too. I believe you, Manuka. And I can tell you of times when they come back looking like old people or strangers from far off. Oh, I like that. Nobody comes around here. Come here, Tontones! Come here in a form of a stranger, young and handsome! Oh, ah. <laughs> Maria Purissima! Tuesday today, Tuesday tomorrow, Tuesday all week! It was only the wind, Manuka. I heard one crying last night. Sounded like it was going round and round the house. A long while ago, an old lady caught one and beat it, darling. Beat it with a stick till she separated its head from its body. And you won't believe it, but early the next morning they found a headless woman in the village. She was a witch who ate human flesh. Hush, Manuka. My aunt said it's wrong to talk about witchcraft.
0: She's one to talk about what's wrong. You can find a film scene from this play on our website featuring Desiree Baxter and Anna Solis, directed by Anisha Kutarkar. Special thanks to Director of Photography Jenny DisRosiers, sound designer Stephanie Coriatis, and production stage manager Jessica Fournier. A very special thank you to Stephen Beck for his editing prowess on this episode of This is a Classic.
1: Quick, huge thank you to the wonderful Emma Stern for doing a lot of the dramaturgical research on this particular play. So thank you, Emma. Thank you so much for joining us today for our The Pascuanas edition of This is a Classic, the Expand the Canon theater podcast. You can learn more at expandthecanon.com. If you believe in the importance of expanding the canon, please give us a
0: five-star review and subscribe to this podcast. And then hit the share button and
1: forward it along to a friend, a colleague, a professor. Weather. And for info on what's up next with us, you can follow us on Instagram at Hedgepig Ensemble Theater or on Facebook Slash Hedgepig Ensemble Theater or you can join our mailing list at hedgepigensemble.org. You can also support
0: this effort by donation at the link in the comments below. Once again, I'm Sky Pagan and I'm Mary Candler. Bye bye. Bye bye.